Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all. Wow. I'm excited. Are you? And, uh, you know, I love Minneapolis. I just have to say it. I know it gets me on the good side of you uh, if I say it, but I really do love Minneapolis. And I've so enjoyed. There's so many things, particularly over this last few days, that I've so enjoyed about being here. I've loved being with Warwick and Trish Alcock, very close friends. Um, it's really been great to be in your home, to share your lives, to meet the kids again, to see how you've uh, transitioned from Cape Town, South Africa, to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, you've made a great transition and made lots of great friends. And so I've really been embraced by you, and I really appreciate you very much. I've also loved the fellowship. You know, I, I came, I suppose, in a sense, knowing that I was going to give out. I hadn't expected to receive, but I really have received. It really began on Thursday evening when I was, uh, well, probably it began actually on Thursday afternoon when I was invited to play a golf match out at Baker there. Um, by the end of the afternoon, you know, most bad golfers like me, they're in a pretty foul mood. Um, but... Uh, be that as it may, on Thursday night, for me, Thursday night was a, was a watershed moment when men got together and talked about issues of sexual purity, talked about issues of honesty, talked about issues of transparency. That just doesn't normally happen. And in 25 years of ministry, over a lot of different places... I think for me it was a unique moment of seeing a pastor just open his heart. And that's not an easy thing for a pastor to do. But if he can do it, then a lot of us can do it as well. If he can't do it, probably we're not going to do it either. And I spent half an hour in a car after that, uh, that evening just sharing hearts with somebody who had given me a lift home that just wouldn't have happened. And for me that's mission. That's mission. If God can capture again the hearts of his men, his people, and really put them in a place of transparency and honesty before him and before one another, and really vulnerability and weakness, understanding weakness, then I think we're moving. I think God's doing something. And so it's not just mission out there. It's mission in here. And I so like that about being uh, at that Free over these last few days and then just being part of Kids Against Hunger. I'm not sure how I felt about tasting it, but it, it, was, it was better packing it. I think that's the honest truth. If I'm absolutely honest about it, uh, I preferred packing it. But um, it, it was just a, an intergenerational event that I just loved. And, and you've, you've really taught me about going back and you know, we live in Africa. We should be doing it in Africa. Not coming to America to do it for Africa. Or do it for India. Or do it for Indonesia. Wherever it's going. So, it was a great opportunity and so on. And I just want to thank the, uh, the missions team. The leadership team. Guys, you really have gone the extra mile. You've just done something very special over this weekend. And God will honor that. And I know it's been a lot of hard work, and I know it's tired, and I know you're probably glad it only comes about once a year, but it's been 
a very, very significant event, and I've been thrilled to be part of it. The third F is I've loved your fall, your autumn fall. You know, going out on Baker, the public course there, and playing golf, most of my time admittedly was spent looking for balls, but there were moments when I looked up and I looked out I mean, this is a secret. This is a best-kept secret. This is just beautiful. And the thing is that God turns it on every year for you. I mean, that's amazing. I come from the most beautiful city in the world. I've got to say it. It is that little bit better than Minnesota. But, but be that, it, we, we can argue about that. But for me, Cape Town, I'll tell you what Cape Town's like. Cape Town is a city of four seasons, just like Minneapolis is. The only difference is we get the four seasons in one day. That's the only difference between Cape Town and Minneapolis. So I've loved being here and thank you so much for the opportunity just to spend time with you, just to share with you. I see Mike there. Mike's got his head down because I was playing golf with him. And if you want to hear about my golf, you want to hear about Mike's golf. So, but I want to just say that I do have a message. I do have something that I believe God has placed in my heart. But you know, one message of itself. Well, tomorrow's Monday. And you've got to get on with the week. And if it were purely that this was a message of itself, then I believe it would be forgotten about within hours. But if God has put on my heart a... If I believe by faith, that God has placed on my heart a message that somehow goes with the flow of what God has been doing in this local church over a much longer period of time than I've ever been a part of. If God has got a message that goes with that flow, then this is not a message that will be forgotten. Because it is part of the bigger picture of what God is doing with his children, young and old. And I'm so excited to look out on this community of believers this morning, to see under tens to over whatevers. I, I'm excited by that. But God is doing something. And so I would hope that this message would fit in with the flow of that. And if it is part of that flow, then it will not be forgotten because God's word does not return back to him empty. Let me take you to two scriptures on which I want to base what I want to, what I want to say. Because my theme, I suppose, for want of a better word, is reconciliation. I'm going to articulate for, for you a little bit about what that might mean in terms of a sermon title in a minute. But there are two scriptures that I want to draw your attention to this morning. And here's the first one. Colossians 1, 19-23. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you and I were alienated from God, enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to be holy 
in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope set out in the gospel. That's a powerful scripture. There's another scripture that I just want to just draw your attention to. If that is all about the meaning of mission, the meaning of reconciliation, this one is about the application of mission, the mandate that God has given us. And it reads like this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we regarded Christ in this way, there's a little section there that says we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they, he or she, is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this from God, who reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that Christ was in the world, reconciling men to himself and women, and has committed to us the message of reconciliation, I repeat there. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Father, we just want to pray. Take a moment out, having read your word. Those scriptures, Father, we acknowledge are the most significant parts of what is to be said. And you have promised that your word will not return to you empty without touching, without provoking, without blessing, without challenging. And we want that to be the case today. For your glorious name's sake. Amen. My title is Embracing Giants. Embracing Giants. Embracing because reconciliation is best depicted by this word embrace. You could almost say reconciliation is spelled embrace. Now, I've put it on top of a very special photograph. I couldn't resist doing this. I mean, I'm showing this all over the place because this is my first grandchild born a month ago. What do you think about that? Isn't he beautiful? You see how my daughter, Heidi, naturally just embraces him? She didn't have to be taught to do that. And if you get a deep sense of what is going on here in these scriptures that I've read to you, Paul is simply saying that God has, has brought us, he's engaged us in a full embrace, in an unconditional Embrace. He has put his arms around us. The Greek word here for reconciliation is the word katalasu. It simply means to bring into changed relationship. And in this context of these scriptures, Colossians 1, 19-23, 2 Corinthians 5, 16-20, it simply has articulated what we mean by embrace. You and I were not popular with God. There was, there was a barrier. There was, a, there was an inseparable or a very separable gap between where we are and where God is. But through Christ's body, in death, God has embraced us. 
And enemy becomes friend. You were alienated from God. Enemies. The Apostle Paul is is direct. Enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now by Christ's body through death, he has reconciled you to be holy in his sight without blemish. My goodness. And free from accusation. That's embrace. That's embrace. The question, of course, is who does the embracing? Well, on the one hand, of course, it's God. He embraces us as a gift. But that's only actually half the story. It's not just God embracing us as a gift. God calls us to a ministry of embracing others as a gift. So, the ministry flows out of the gift. And it is a ministry. 2 Corinthians 5, 16-20 He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Hey, this is not a role. This is not some gift you can exercise when asked. You and I have been given a ministry of embracing others. As we have been embraced. Do you feel embraced by God this morning? What does it feel like? I mean, if I asked you, what does it feel like to be embraced by God? I would get some extraordinary and profound answers. Now, Paul says, go do it. As a ministry. What happens when you don't exercise a ministry? What happens? It atrophies. It dies. It's kept alive by the Holy Spirit because we are regenerated in the Holy Spirit, but it is to be exercised. It's not about what goes on for others out there. It's what exercising this ministry does to you. Because I exercise as a, a ministry, a ministry is something that energizes me. I don't get tired exercising a ministry. It, in fact, does the opposite. It energizes me. And so it grows me. And when I have been in a place where I have exercised the ministry of reconciliation, I am absolutely energized. Let me give you an example. I was on a flight coming out to the USA last September. I was tired. I was disappointed. Things had been going on in my college. I was actually really at the point where all I wanted to do was watch the movie and go to sleep. And I was on my way to a place called Doha in transit to Heathrow. And a man sat next to me and he said, he was a Pakistani Muslim man, and he said to me, so where are you going? I said, well, I'm going actually to England to see my parents. He said, you live in Cape Town? I said, yes. He said, what do you do? Now, I did not want to be asked that question. I did not want to be asked that question. And I said, well, I, I, I lecture. Oh, where you lecture? I said, oh. Well, I lecture at a Christmas, Christian college. Christian college? Oh, really? Really? You know, I'm a Muslim. 
I said, yes, I, I think I... I mean, he had a big beard down here, dressed as a Muslim. I said, yes. He said, tell me, why are you going to England? I said, my father's very ill. And I'm going to spend some time with him. You love your father, he said. I said, yes. He said, I love my father. I also love my father. I come from Islamabad. And he said, my father's the sort of man, and I'll stop the Indian accent. My father's the sort of man, he said, who walked down the street and he would buy the rotten fruit from the vendor because he knew the man could not make a profit. I thought, now how many Christians do I know would do that? And as he began to speak, he began to weep. Now, I'm sitting on a flight. All I wanted was my meal, a movie, and to go to sleep. But here's the ministry of reconciliation. It flows. Because it's a ministry of embracing. And I put my arm around him. And I put his head onto my shoulder as he wept. I have no idea what the, other, what the other passengers must have thought was going on. It didn't really matter. At that moment, he put his head on my shoulder. And I put my arm round him and allowed him to weep. And I said to him, that's all right. And when we got out at Doha, I was going in one line, he was going in another. He walked across to me and he said to me, you and I are friends. And I want to keep in touch with you. You see, the gospel is about embracing. It's holistic. It may begin anywhere. It can begin here. But it grows. The point I wanted to make was, the way I got on that plane was, I was a wreck. I was tired. I was disappointed. I was critical. I got off that plane energized. Why? Because I'd been exercising ministry. I had embraced. Simply embraced. Hardly any words were said. Except all that I had was a wet jacket where he had been weeping. Do I make my point about embracing? Let me go on to the second part. And you may say, well, he's only on the title. How long is he going to go on for? <laughs> I will pull it together, I promise you. Embracing giants. Now, I'll let you have a good look at these pictures so that you don't get distracted when I tell you what it's all about. But the question is, do you believe in giants? Well, here's some evidence. Now, I'm not going to defend these pictures, okay? The point is this. That the tasks that God calls us to are God-ordained tasks. Therefore, they are God-sized tasks. Now, I can see you can't get over this photograph, can you? Look at the people digging around the head. Look at the tractor at the background there, against the head. Now, let's turn it off, otherwise you won't listen to another thing. The point is, when God gives us ministry, it is God-sized ministry. It is gigantic ministry. 
God doesn't build it around us. God, God builds it around him. Because he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. What is gigantic to us is normal to God. I think of Paul and Michelle. One family in two years coming to Christ. You may say that's minuscule. But it's actually about a nation called Turkey. God has a heart for the nation of Turkey. And it may be that Paul and Michelle have responsibility for one small domain. It is still God-sized. A nation of over 60 million people. And so the size of the task is in fact God's size. To reconcile to himself, Paul says, all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. So whatever we see on earth is only half of Paul's picture. There is other work, in other words, for us to do. And when God gives work, it is conceived in eternity and it is in and through the majesty of God and it reflects the glory of God. It is how and what we embrace that is the heart of the challenge that I want to bring this morning because I'm particularly focusing in the last bit of my sermon on embracing difference. Now, we are all different, aren't we? Have a look around. Very different. I once heard about an argument that went on between a husband and wife. And he said to her, darling, I don't know how you can be so beautiful and so stupid all at the same time. And she said to him, well, darling, I was made beautiful so that you'd be attracted to me and I was made stupid so that I'd be attracted to you. I don't know where that came from, but anyway. Let me give you an example, because I want to go in a particular direction this morning. One way of understanding embracing difference, this giant, it is a giant. I come from South Africa. It is probably the biggest giant that we face, is embracing difference because of our history. We have had to learn all over again what it means to really embrace difference. But in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus is giving his last instructions to the disciples. They're quite a broken band of people. They've come through betrayal. They've come through crucifixion. They've come through outcasting. They're sort of reconstituting themselves as a unit. There's still some suspicion between them, given the history of their relationship, both with one another and with Jesus. And Jesus says these words, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Hey, that's great. That's great. I can handle that. No, I haven't finished yet. And in Judea and Samaria. Okay. Then it becomes embracing giants. And 
to the ends of the earth. I can just imagine what is going on in their minds at this point. Because little did they know that as Jesus was giving them that last instruction before he ascended to the Father, little did they know that actually there was a giant of difference on its way into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth was all going to happen in one city. At one time. And we know the, the story, the Holy Spirit falls on this small group, this motley group in a dramatic way. But what they received was absolutely consistent with what they were being commissioned to do. Because they were being given a ministry. They were going to exercise a ministry to the ends of the earth and it wasn't going to begin in 200 years time. It was going to begin in 40 days time. And they were given languages. And we as the church of Jesus Christ in the world today have got stuck on the issue of tongues. It's become a point of division. It's become a point of suspicion. And it's ultimately become a point of alienation. It was never intended to do so because it was what was needed for the ministry at that time. It wasn't in a vacuum. It wasn't in isolation. They needed the languages because of the giant of difference that was on the doorstep at exactly the same time as the Holy Spirit fell on them. And as you read the story of what happened, it's quite remarkable. And I want to give you a principle here. But here's the principle. That if God calls men and women to ministry, God equips men and women for ministry. It's an absolutely powerful principle that God does not call you to what he does not equip you for. That's why languages were given. Because they needed equipping for this giant that had suddenly appeared on the doorstep. And it's quite an extraordinary story. Within minutes, they realized the significance of this miracle. For at the very place that they were gathered, at which point they received the Holy Spirit, a large group of Jews from the diaspora, from all over the known world, in fact, Paul says in his sermon, to the ends of the earth, had arrived right there. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Crete, Arabia. Why are we given these names? Because Pentecost is not over. Pentecost continues. And so... Incredibly, these disparate groups of people heard the wonders of God, it says in Acts 2, in their own languages, right there in Jerusalem. The disciple 
Peter picks up on the opportunity and we don't know which language he used. He could have used any one of, I think, something like 11 or 12 languages and he made an offer that it would extend to the ends of the earth. He suddenly got the picture. And in his sermon, he preached this. This promise is for you, right here now, and your children, there's the Judea and Samaria, and for all those who are far away. Amen. Hallelujah. Peter got the picture. And thousands of these foreigners were embraced by Christ. Thousands of them suddenly found community with one another. This was a truly multilingual church, a multicultural church, a multinational church. And here's the second principle. When God calls us, He brings opportunities for ministry into focus. He doesn't bring them to us, but He brings them into focus. I need that. Because I don't see very far. In fact, I'm using glasses these days. Are you out there, by the way? I suddenly lost you. But He brings ministry into focus. And you begin to say, Kids Against Hunger. Sexual purity amongst men. He brings them into focus. And as he brings them into focus, so you begin to engage because you've been given a ministry. Do you want this ministry to die? You can't afford for it to die. You can't afford for it to atrophy. The point that I'm making is that the disciples never went beyond the confines of their own city. And yet they reached the ends of the earth. That's powerful. That's powerful. And I suppose in, in coming to a point of application, I want to bring this challenge to you. And remember where I began. I said, what is God doing in, in, in this local church? Does this message fit with the flow of what God is doing? If it does, you will hear it as from God. We are ambassadors for Christ and not from Dr. Ashley Smith. But the question is, what is going on here? Because historically, churches and denominations, and rightly so, have focused on Acts 1.8 and said, go out to the ends of the earth. And it has been going on for hundreds of years. And it is powerful to see missionaries come home and report what God is doing, like Paul and Michelle have done this morning. But the focus has been primarily on going and sending. What about embracing and receiving? What about the Pentecost that could go on here? You see, it's not either or, it's both and. Because in the last decade, the picture has changed. Global demographics are showing a dramatic population shift around the world. And we as the church of God, we need to sit up and start taking notice of what God is doing. Because when God was preparing, when Jesus was preparing that little group of disciples, he already knew that there were the nations were coming to Jerusalem. Let me tell you, the nations are coming to Minneapolis. And this picture of the global demographics is a very interesting one. Because it's a picture that we can scarce begin to understand. 
Because around the world, people are having to accommodate what we call internally, pla- di- internally displaced people groups. 26 million of whom are from Africa alone. If they're displaced, you have to ask, where are they going? And what does it have to do with me? And the continent of Africa, and I speak as an African as well as a South African, and I work in a context and teach in a context and lead in a context that is multi, that is, that is reflective of the African continent as God calls us to train and raise up leaders for the, for the, for the nations of Africa. The continent of Africa has been particularly affected. I grieve as I look at this. I grieve as I look at it. Global trends and developments in 2007. Internal displacement. Monitoring Center 2007. Norwegian Refugee Council. And there's your numbers. And in South Africa alone, at the bottom of the screen, we have had to accommodate in the last few years 5 million of this 26 million. And tomorrow at Bethel University, I'm going to be speaking to a group of people about the outflow of that and the impact of that in xenophobic violence because people do not accommodate that sort of influx of refugees. And they react and they resist and they push away. But these people are going somewhere. I mean, the numbers are frightening. Just from the DRC, right in the center of your picture, 1,400,000 internally displaced people. Never mind, Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia, one million, Ethiopia, and so I could go on. Uh, These were nations that were closed to the gospel. They are Muslim nations. Missionaries could not get in. Now these people are going somewhere. And the question we've got to ask is, what has that got to do with me? And I suppose as I was beginning to think this through and beginning to wonder whether I should even raise it as an issue, I began to say to myself, what are we as local churches doing about it in my little back garden area in in, in Cape Town? Well, let me tell you, in the last last five months, we have fed 19,000 people just in my community because they are displaced. You see, these refugees, and this is what makes the, the challenge so, so great, gigantic, embracing giants. These refugees have been pushed out of their home countries by poverty, by political instability, by war and genocide. And they bring their cultural and their religious traditions with them, but they also bring experiences of deep trauma and pain and attitudes of suspicion and fear and alienation. So they're a much harder group to reach now. Or maybe they're just the opposite, because God is in control. And you see, what I really am wanting to say to you this morning is that this calls for a completely new type of missionary endeavor. In some ways, it's so much more attractive to mobilize a local church to be a missions-sending church. After all, the problems and needs faced by the people groups to which these missionaries are sent don't really touch on the daily lives of the local church. 
But now this Pentecost is different in that we have to receive and embrace in our own backyard. So to be faced with the problems and the needs of strangers from other countries on one's own doorstep, well, that is a different story. Let me bring it right to its conclusion. In our Jerusalem, a large group of people have arrived. In 1990, fewer than 5,000 Minnesota residents have been born in Africa. By 2000, that number had increased to more than 34,000. By 2002, nearly 9,000 additional immigrants had arrived from African nations. 13% of Minnesota's foreign-born residents in the 2000 census were from Africa, higher than any other state in the country. Most arrived as refugees bringing with them experiences of deep trauma and pain and attitudes of suspicion and fear, together with feelings of anger and alienation. They never, ever planned to come to America. But then they wouldn't have seen the autumn. Those working with the Somalis here in the Twin Cities estimate that there are actually 20 to 50,000 Somalis in the state. Most are single, 20 to 40 years of age, and because many of their men were killed during the war, are mostly women with five or more children. And all data suggests that this is the largest group of Somalis in the United States of America, right here in our own backyard. And in 1998, the former Soviet republics sent the highest number of immigrants, followed by Somalia, then Mexico, here to this state, here to this city. You also have large numbers from Southeast Asia. The biggest Cambodian temple in North America is in uh, Farmington. Refugees have arrived from China. Immigrants have arrived from India. The largest Hindu temple in North America is in Maple Grove. Ethiopia, Tibet, they're all here. And the Spirit of God is here. You can't just detach the two. They're all here. And the Spirit of God is here. And the ministry is here. And the way forward is challenging. And it begins with attitude. Questions like, what is your attitude to multiculturalism? How do we, as Christians, send a message of acceptance out? How do we communicate that message? It's an attitude. And then there are some action steps, and I want to conclude with this. The first action step is this. That if we are to look at our own backyard and we have the, 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 the Holy Spirit here and we have the ministry of reconciliation here and we put the three together, it begins with research. 
What other churches and interest groups are already working with internally displaced people in your community? And you will be surprised. And this is the wonder of what God wants to do. Because God wants us to network. Not go it alone. This is not something that can be done by one or two. Or by one or two thousand. It has to be done on a broad scale. In my case with that 18,000, 19,000 people who had to be fed, it took all the churches across Cape Town, from north to south to east to west, working together as one. And I saw it and was part of it and witnessed to it. It can be done. And I think that that's what I'm sensing with the flow of the Holy Spirit, Lord, is this... Is this a time? Is this a place? Is this a context? Is this an opportunity where we begin to network and we drop the fears of interdenominational relationship? We drop the fears and we raise up the object and the focus. God brings ministry into focus for all his church. You may find that you're going to have to work with the Baptists. The secondly is a review moment. It begins with prayer. It cannot begin with getting out there. I mean, I'm excited by this because you've already moved to a very tangible place. Here it is. I can, in my mind's eye, see children eating. But you're not there with the sort of challenge that I'm bringing. It begins with prayer. And the prayer challenges that we need to begin praying for a change in attitude towards people in our backyard. The work is immense. And you may say, well, praise God that there's already some doing it. Let me tell you, the refugee crisis in Minnesota is the, the, the embracing of, of immigrants is going to go on and on and on and on. It is going, there will be more than enough opportunity. But we begin praying for an attitude of embracing those from different backgrounds. And the third step is a restorative step. Because of my own profession, my own interest, I'm deeply aware that this is a very difficult task because when you begin to work with, with, with mental and emotional and psychological trauma, it is, it, it's going to require something special. And these are people who are like that. They never expected to be here. And on the way, they've probably been to ten other settled Areas that they thought would be settled and then moved on and moved on and moved on. And ultimately they come to Minneapolis, to the Twin Cities or somewhere else in Minnesota. Ultimately they come here. They don't even look up to see the autumn fall. All they remember is the grief behind. And so the restorative is to set small key targets of how to engage displaced people according to our own time constraints and according to our own capacity and we move slowly and we watch and we work and we pray. It's a new day. It's a new opportunity. And the challenge is 
Embrace a giant. Embrace a giant. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening this morning.